of Wild, Wicked, and Weird. I'm your host, Will Voivodic, and join me as my my sultry co-host, Brett oh, Hedges. I haven't been called that in a very long time. Brett Hedges and Will Voivodic Ooh, here. I'm awake now. We are two average Canadians talking about some of the wild, wicked, and weird stories that come out of our weird little city of Windsor, Ontario, and around the world. Thanks for joining us, and I uh, hope you guys are enjoy- uh, ready to have some fun with us here today. That's right, that's right. Like us on Facebook if you haven't already. If you guys have any ideas for shows or anything you want to see, I don't know, some crazy Photoshop with me and Brett's faces on or some video or something. Um, what is it called? Deepfake? Is that what the kids are doing nowadays? I'm not sure anymore. If you have an idea for that, yeah, shout us out on Twitter or uh, post in the Facebook group. You know, we're always we're always uh, open ears for that. I have a pretty exciting story to tell you this week. Do you want Do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? What did we do last time? I went first last week, so let's go first you this week. Let me just close my Facebook here. I was showing Brett before we record. I'm like, let's just do a podcast where we just, I just show you guys my Facebook posts. I'm down to listen to a fun case. Our buddy Ronnie's in the room right now listening to. Ronnie, you're allowed to stay, but you can't start snoring like last time. I heard it. We cranked up the volume. Tried to say it wasn't snoring. It was definitely snoring. It was definitely Flashback. snoring. So, But we're going to have some fun. We're going to have some uh, interesting shy uh some stuff to talk about so my story is pretty old but yours is pretty new right so you want to go new first and old later or what sure sure okay. my story happened in 2007 brett you were young 14 16 year old it depends on what time 15 16 that was like man that was a good time for me i was in grade 10 <laughs> grade 10 high school playing senior basketball playing uh high school baseball playing going to Offsun track, playing high school football. We had an undefeated season that year, 06, 07. It was a good time, man. 07 was good for me. <laughs> I can't complain for 07 for me. So I want to bring you back to July 2007 where there was a manhunt, one of the biggest manhunts you know, of that time. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the murder of Jesse the murderer Jesse Imason in his case. Oh, you're getting close to me here. Yeah. I just Saddle so just so just so we don't uh, so like we've been we're trying to do things a little bit better sound quality wise. We don't want to miss anything. So um, I've never heard. I I know the name. I don't know what he did. You don't remember that? I like vaguely. Right. I vaguely remember what he had. You remember Jesse Imason? It wasn't. No. It wasn't in oh. your realm. Glad I have some virgin ears for tonight, then. Yeah. So this is something new. Yeah, I'm definitely into so, it. So uh, I want to bring you back to Tuesday, July seventeenth, two thousand seven. Our protagonist is twenty two year old Jesse Imason. He's from like Amherstburg, Leamington, and he uh, is fresh out of rehab. He was uh, doing like a Salvation Army inpatient place after he had gone back from BC. He has a girlfriend and, uh, you know, uh, just had a daughter with her. Yeah. And he had some had some hiccups, but he's out of rehab. He's living at a rooming house. He's looking to get his life back on track. But he's had kind of a shady past. He's not a stranger to jail. Um, and, you know, on this day, he was living in a rooming house in downtown Windsor when he decided to visit a gay strip bar downtown. It was called The Tap. Do you remember? 
we can edit this out. You can tell me if you remember. No, it. I've never, I've never, honestly, I've never heard of the tap or anything like that. I knew that there was a. Obviously, Windsor has had its fair share of strip clubs in its yeah. day. And Ronnie, you definitely were a bouncer at the tap from August two thousand four to June two thousand six. No, there's no, there's no credibility for those stories. Spit it out. But um, no, I knew that I I had heard that there was a place called Danny's that was a male strip club. But that was about it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this was another place called the Tap. Now this guy Jesse. He always told his friends that he could make good money dancing for men with his physique. He wasn't gay, but, you know, he, yeah. if he wanted to do that, which, you know, I've never said, you've never said, I don't know, like. Yeah. <laughs> but if you can do we're, it, you know, all the power to you. Yeah, we're not one to judge. Do what you got to do. So during this story, though, like, there's kind of some people that say this guy, Jesse, kind of struggled with his sexuality. And there's people that, you know, speculate that. Um, and there's other like parts of that story about this, but like um, you'll see, you know, some of this stuff that kind of parallels other killers and people who have struggled with their sexuality, kind of. And you think of a guy like John Wayne Gacy. Mm-hmm. Now, this guy didn't dress up like a clown and kill forty kids, but I'm just saying, like, he was gay and he would like give in to his urges and then feel really guilty and ashamed about it, and then he would kill the person. You yeah, know what he, I mean? he would All lash out. He would so, lash out. Yeah. There's kind of an interesting like parallel with that, but anyway, he goes to the tap. I'll get back to my story here. Sorry. Yep. And the t- the staff there, they had never seen him before. He began talking to a bartender named Carlos Rivera. He's our next character in this story. Carlos. While he was there, remember he was gonna go and uh, shake a uh, shake. Shake, uh, clap them cheeks for them dollar bills. He was going to shake his to money pay the maker, gas man. bill. Yep. But while he was there, he never auditioned. He never got on the poll, and he never filled out an application. So, was okay. he really there for a job, or was he there to you know meet some guys? I don't know. The owner Eddie Hand said he had a bad feeling about this guy. He you know, he just had a bad air about him, and he kept bragging about being in the army. But I think they could kind of tell he definitely was never in the army, which yeah. he never was. What do you think his stage name would be if he was like private, private if, dancer, private pain? With the M sixteen and the fucking commando hat, like I was gonna say major pain, but that's a David <laughs> Wayans movie. Um, but I would say like corporal, corporal, corporal little cocker. I don't know. Like, anyway, so anyway, he ends up leaving with Carlos Rivera, the bartender. Carlos was never seen alive again. Shit. So we're going to go to Wednesday morning, the next day, July 18th. Jesse Iveson drove more than 200 kilometers from Windsor to Grand Bend in Rivera's car. Carlos Rivera didn't need the car because he was strangled to death and his body was left in Jesse's room. Damn. It wasn't found until the next day, July 19th. Now, during the trial later on, and Jesse Iveson stated this, um, the Crown, they released the statement of facts, and apparently Jesse Iveson claims that he woke up and Rivera was performing oral sex on him. Okay. So Iveson used his belt to strangle Rivera. He argues that he kind of freaked out about it. So he's saying that they're, they went they went home together but as friends, and they then they went yeah, to sleep, and then he woke up being sexually assaulted. So he's trying to say like he was never interested in Cross yeah. but I mean, he went to a gay bar clearly flirting with this man that went to other bars and had drinks with him and brought him back yeah but that's his defense right and it's really sad because no matter what happened you know it's a real shame this guy uh, carlos rivera he was 
born in 1981 in San Salvador, El Salvador. Yep. That's the capital. I know they sound similar there, but. Mm-hmm. Um, in Salvador. Salvador. San, San Salvador is the name of the city. Yep. Seriously, she sells seashells by the seashore. Sorry, yeah, in I'm just making sure I'm getting it right. El Salvador. So this guy, he had four other siblings, and they went from El Salvador to Guatemala, Uruguay, you know, on their way and finally to Canada. And he was an extremely creative person, a gifted artist. He was a student in uh, the School of Architecture at St. Clair College. Oh. He was recently back from a Habitat Habitat for Humanity mission to rebuild houses in uh, New Orleans right oh, after man. Katrina happened. This is a great guy. And it was just a huge loss for Windsor and Canada and all that really immigrant families who dream of a better life and leave their country to come here and work hard. And the fact that he's just so callously killed like that is just is disgusting really that's, that's really brutal i'm sorry to hear that the way um so this defense that jesse imerson would later say when he killed him that uh when he was woke up and he was doing that to him is sometimes called like a, a gay panic defense okay and the families of the victims and other people in windsor's like gay community were really like mad about this okay because it's not a it's not a real defense you know and it didn't go to trial but it, part of me wishes it almost did, just so that they could kind of show like how stupid of a defense it is and how like dumb it is. Like it's. But by having a good defense lawyer, he would never let that go to trial. I feel anyway, like right? it would work so. in 1952, but it's 2007. Like you know. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. So. Back That's to Holy yeah, shit. and like just the way that it happened, it's interesting because he goes to a gay bar to audition as a dancer, but he never fills out an application or auditions for anything. He just chats up the bartender. And, you know, they went out to other places before going back to his house. So you think that he might have been hunting for oh, a victim? I don't know. I just thought he was just going out to meet guys. Oh, okay. Know. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. So just he going would, out he to was... meet some guys, you know. Oh, okay. So you think, okay. You didn't know that. He... Okay. I, didn't I don't know think that... he was hunting, uh, but maybe he had that urge in him to kill someone and it just happened. Yeah. Like it's not Because it's not his first victim. Oh, we'll oh, okay. So I, I didn't mean to speculate there. Okay, um, so the, the, the plot thickens, and Ronnie's eyebrows raise a little yeah. bit. Oh. So, and also in court, when they read in the statement of facts that he woke up receiving oral sex, he, like, laughed. He was, like, snickering. And it's also alleged he told an undercover cop that if he had to do it again, he would kill the gay guy. So clearly, like didn't like him because he was gay like yeah he he had he was trying to at least to the cops trying to give off some sort of superiority complex to that person so on july 19th the police officially launch a manhunt for jesse imerson oh shit okay that same day he spotted at a bar called gar's bar gar's bar and grill gary don't you know in exeter which is right around grand bend yeah i've been i used to play hockey in exeter oh i thought you were gonna say i used to work at gar's bar Great chicken wings. <laughs> I I know that there's there's not much in Exeter, Ontario, but there, there's not. There's Isn't there a, a playhouse around there. Something? Uh, I know there's like there's, a theater. That's Strathroy. Oh yeah, which I isn't think too so. far. But Exeter, yeah, small town, small hockey town. There's a couple little hotels around there. That's about it. That all I know. Yeah. So the next day on July twentieth, Carlos Rivera's car is found around Grand Bend. After he ditched the car, Jesse Iveson, he broke into a couple sheds and cottages, and he found a twenty-two caliber semi-automatic rifle and 200 rounds of ammunition. 200, okay. So he's okay. armed, he's dangerous, the manhunt is on. 
And uh, during this time, he hooked up with a teenager named Lindsay Glavin. Okay. And uh, in Grand Bend, and they kind of hooked up for a couple of days. She had no idea that he had just killed someone who's on the run. Yeah. Because she didn't look at a newspaper or look at the TV or anything. Obviously, he's a deep, he's a smooth talker of some sort. She dropped him off at a place called Stephen Township, um, and it's north of this of Mount Carmel line, which is near this town called Mount Carmel. Yep, I and used to play hockey in there too. At this time. Me and my family, we go to Grand Bend every year. And we were in Grand Bend during this manhunt. Oh. And it was the talk of the town. Of course. And my cousin, one of his buddies, was there. And they met this guy at the fucking bar. Oh, my God. In between this time. Between, like... Uh, While he's on the run. Yeah. Like, between the 20th and the 22nd. They so met like, him at a bar, and he just talked. He's like, yeah, I'm just kind of, like, you know, hanging out. Don't really have anywhere to stay tonight. And they were like, yeah, come hang out at our place. And... Jesse Iverson went to, you know, my cousin's buddy's cottage and just hung out with them for the night, woke up and left. And then they saw the news and realized that he's wanted for murder, armed and dangerous, and they freaked out. I remember them telling me this. It was fucking crazy. Yeah. So they could have been... He was just hanging out in Grand Bend. They could have been the victim, next victims, yeah. You know what? He probably just felt that they were super nice to him and they didn't judge him or anything, so Maybe. he left And he was live. fucking jacked, too, this guy. He was yeah. big boy. Yeah, and I like just started working out. I was like, oh, this, this motherfucker would have killed that guy. <laughs> 23 in charge. If I was there. Him. So um, the next day, or two days later, on July 22nd, Jesse Iverson smashed his way into a farmhouse in Mount Carmel, Ontario, where Bill Regier... Uh, was born and raised and he ordered bill and his wife helen at gunpoint into the basement Brutal. once he had them in the basement he cut the telephone line and he used the cord to tie helen reggie's hands in front of her he used uh, another cord cut from a clothes iron to bind her husband and his hands were outstretched on either side of him, on either side of him to joists and pipes and then he shot helen in the head or shot her four times in the chin shoulder neck and chest and then she shot him i'll probably skip this part because it's fucking disgusting when i'm just talking about it but just okay just take your time evil the shit this guy was doing um and helen was left bleeding to death on the ground while her husband uh remained in a half standing position literally held up by his bound hands and he just left him there and he stole their 2006 gmc sierra pickup truck later on when he was being interviewed he literally just told the cops they were asking about how this happened and he was like annoyed he's like well What's to know? Why do you keep asking? He's like, shots were fired, people died. He's like, they died. Just so callously, you know. like It was nothing to him because exactly. they just had what he needed. So that Seven happened on the 22nd. The next day, on the 23rd, uh, their bodies were discovered. And these people, Helen and Bill Regier, uh, they were pillars in their community. And they left behind six children, 16 grandchildren, and five great-grandchildren. And the city, the town was just, you know, devastated when this happened. And they, he's still on the run. People are freaking out. During this time, okay, like, think of late 2000s. A 2006 GMC Sierra is the most common pickup truck in southwestern yeah, Ontario. It's everywhere. Mm-hmm. So, like, there was a million people getting pulled over. People would be in traffic, and everyone would just be looking at them, thinking, like, is that the fucking killer? Is that the guy? Like, should we call okay. the cops? Like, and so... It's a lot of suspicion, just, especially in, yeah. like, small towns back then. It can cause widespread yeah. paranoia. It was... There was a lot of paranoia. And uh, this turned, when he killed these this sweet old couple, it turned from a regional manhunt to a national manhunt. And you know when it's a national manhunt, Brett? When fucking America's Most Wanted gets involved. When they profiled John him Walsh. on the website. 
And they also did a short feature on him, like a little one, a little like a uh, clip in a main episode. Yeah, when John Walsh is talking about you, you—that's the big time. Look at this scumbag! Yeah. Oh, just the the yeah. Family Guy John Walsh. Is People so that are funny. listening know how this story ends, <laughs> and they were thinking they were planning on doing a full feature episode next week, but we know how this story ends. They did not doing the other episode, the next episode, because. It's not as much fun if they're already caught. It's not called America's Most Wanted last week or <laughs> America's Used to Be Most Wanted. That's you know, true. John yeah. Walsh just he just doesn't have that effect when <laughs> the person is not on the run. Yeah. <laughs> Once they're behind bars, they're nothing to him anymore. Exactly. He's on to the next scumbag. Look at this yeah. scumbag. So for the next eight days... Uh, Imason would break into cottages and steal food and supplies, and then he, you know, shovel back into the woods. And this was a huge manhunt for that week. The entire country was really, you know, on edge. And where was he at this time? He, the last place he was seen was in Grand Bend. Okay. But he was being seen everywhere, man, all over Canada and, you know, southwestern Ontario. But they eventually recovered the GMC Sierra on July 31st in a heavily wooded, sparsely populated area on the outskirts of a place called Beechburg near the Quebec border. So he's made his way north significantly. Wow. And a really, really weird coincidence is that in this small town, you know, hundreds of miles away from where he was last seen, there are a lot of people who are related to the Reggie family. Oh my God. The people who were just murdered. They have cousins and people living up there. And, uh, you know, this place is just 15 kilometers where the truck was found. So could you imagine having your grandparents or aunts and uncles who lived hundreds of miles away? They've just been murdered and tied up. The guy's on the loose, and they find his truck in your town, and he's gone. Like, you would think this guy's after, after your you. family. Yeah. Like, literally. Yeah, you would think that there's, like, That's some sort of nuts. vendetta against your family name or something. Yeah. So this is still... Uh, that's a that's an interesting twist, bro. That's an in, that's a interesting so twist. Later that same day, Jesse Iverson broke into a home twenty miles north of the Quebec border. So he's crossed the border. He's okay. in a town called Portage du Fort, on Quebec. Sorry, my uh, the last French class I took was in grade nine, and my Madame Blasque uh, would have been very mad at me for all of these pronunciations. Sorry, so you, Brett, put your put your lips together when you want to say you. So when he broke into this home, he came face to face with the homeowner. His name is Bob Simpson, and Jesse Iverson just turned around and booked it and just left. So Bob recognized his face. You know, probably loves John Walsh. Was probably watching America's Most Wanted. Well, not the time to like called the police. Yeah. So helicopters and canine units swarmed the area, and they found Jesse Iverson in a bush lying down next to the loaded .22 rifle. Ooh. He went out, not in a blaze of glory. He went laying down, you know, very um, underwhelming kind of Yeah, you know, yeah, he, finish. yeah. And, but uh, he's caught, which is important. He's caught. So, oh, one second here. We're watching my Facebook video. Yeah. No, I don't want to learn how to peel a Here, lobster let's, right let's now. Let's look at my diss on this terrible food video. It's got <laughs> 10 likes. I'm fucking blowing up like nitro over here. Really clean restaurant. We're doing that another one. Yeah, we're not talking about that. Anyways, so, where am I? What was I talking about here? So, Jesse Iveson, he was charged with first-degree murder for each victim, for Carlos and then the Red Jays. So, three. Yeah, he took a plea deal. And he pled guilty to second-degree murder to all of them. 
Um, he was given life with a chance of parole after 15 years for the murder of Carlos Rivera and life with a chance of parole after 25 years for each of the Reggies. He will be eligible for parole in 2033. Damn, that's not long enough. When the judge asked him if he wanted to say anything, Iveson said no. But his lawyer had a statement and the killer said he was very sorry. An apology that the relatives and the victims denounced as hollow. So imagine the judge saying, do you have anything to say for yourself? You say, no. And then the lawyer's like, oh, I'll read a statement for him. And then saying he's sorry while he's there saying nothing. Like, yeah. that's worse than saying nothing. It that is, is so much worse. Yeah. That's terrible. But that defense lawyer. So he's there. Sorry, yeah. go ahead. But I think, like, I don't know, that, that defense lawyer probably. He's trying. He probably, he's doing his job, yeah. but it, it probably helps. It probably helps the crown more in the appeal than the defense, Maybe. though, by him apologizing for him. Though. So Jesse like, Iverson's there doing nothing, and the lawyer's literally reading the statement and saying, "I will be an old man before I am released, if I ever am. I am truly sorry. Please forgive me." You know, that's, that's it. Yeah, that's all he. <laughs> that's Fuck all his lawyer. He didn't even say that exactly. Oh my God. And people were angry because, I don't know if you noticed, but Carlos got fif- was 15 years and then a chance of parole, and the Reggies yes. were 25. And people were kind of angry about that because the sentencing kind of makes it seem like Carlos's life is less valuable, although we should let it be known that like other people argue that it's because he like tied up the Reggies and then shot them in the head. That's kind of considered aggravating factors well yeah and it's in the commission of a of another crime too like a felony right so like if yeah, he, he's he, he was he was robbing them as well like he I only guess. he only murdered carlos some people he was in the commission of robbing them and taking shit from them too right yeah um some people like there's this guy named matthew mcdonald who was president of the outlaws and that's like a queer group with the university of windsor law school okay get it out like outlaws as yep. in Brett came out of the closet last summer to me. <laughs> it's late. <laughs> it's it's Brett late, and, and I was and I spaced out for a second. I was like, he's talking about me. Oh, fuck. Okay, yeah. So this guy, me. Matthew yeah. McDonald, part of this group, he talks about how the sentence and how it was later, you know, it was less than the other ones, and he said people are concerned about the disparity. A lot of people took it rightly or wrongly that a gay life is worth less. And that disparity that he talks about is, you know, the difference in sentences. Of course. I'm talking about the, the gay panic defense and stuff, and mm-hmm. it was pretty, it was pretty, it was pretty interesting. Well, you know, it's definitely got a sting. Like it's definitely got to sting any member of that community yeah. to know that a, a heterosexual couple, their their lives combined were were up to fifty years, and the person of a of a single, uh, minority, gay person was only. 15 years right and i'm surprised that he didn't get pled down to manslaughter for his yeah his car his murder as well so i know i'm glad that he got secondary murder for carlos's murder the fact that he like could get out in 2033 is pretty fucked though but it's I, like we live in canada that's the justice system sometimes it's not perfect. yeah yeah it's not perfect right we we do focus on rehabilitation more so than punishment so hopefully yeah. if this person is truly sick and whatever and and he can be helped Sure, but most of those people cannot be helped. At the end of the day, they're going to hurt people, maim people, and do shit just because they feel like they are superior to that person. So if they're that sick, keep them away. And I don't care who you are. So more recently, uh, in 2019, he had an appeal rejected by the Supreme Court. Oh, so he's already God. trying to get out. Mm-hmm. 
The appeal called into question claims that childhood sexual abuse contributed to his lethal behavior as an adult. Mm-hmm. Jesse Iverson had a shitty upbringing. There's okay. no denying that. And, you know, I can talk about it. He had a really shitty life. And, and to be able to be driven to those kind of crimes with no remorse in your in your psyche at all, you had to have had a horrible upbringing to not know any kind of empathy. So this appeal is based on two main things. One is that he says he was abused by a man named Tony at Maryvale uh, back in 96 and 97 when he was there. Yep. And he actually started a civil lawsuit in 2011 against Maryvale and claimed, along with other defendants, for vicarious liability on Maryvale's behalf for this impl- this person that worked there. So other people came out and said this guy did this. And in okay. 2016, a jury actually found them vicariously liable for this guy's conduct. But Maryvale appealed the decision... Because they found out that the person who like got this information from Jesse when he said he was abused, that they weren't qualified to do this type of thing. Okay. So went back and forth, but basically he tried to sue them. Didn't fucking happen. He also said uh, another guy named Father Howarth, who was a priest with the Roman Catholic Church of London. But there's no history. I couldn't find any stuff of abuse about this guy or other allegations. But, you know. We all know how the Roman Catholic Church is so good at keeping records and <laughs> opening their books to everyone. Yeah, they'll shuffle the deck of the knows, though? too. He had yeah. a really shitty life. Like, you know, Jesse Iverson is a convicted killer, but I I really don't know if he was born this way. Of it course. Could, you could argue a case that he, that he was. He was definitely desensitized to administering pain to other people if, he's, if he can just do that to people. But obviously if he has some sort of psychiatric uh underlying issue then maybe that it can be helped and he can be rehabilitated right that's what you can pray for so he grew up in amosburg his father committed suicide when he was nine. Oh, and imason claims that he was the one who found the body and this would really fuck you up if you were nine years old that's horrible this devastated him according to family and friends and then after this when he was 10 his mom put him in foster care but she kept all his younger siblings. Oh. So this is called um, child abandonment yep. by children's aid. Pretty fucked up. But also, uh, there's an article that says a family friend says she did it for him. He was causing trouble in the home and she couldn't handle it at the time after her husband died. So I don't know. I mean, also the kids that she kept ended up being taken care of by other family members also. Okay. So it's really it's really sad that a nine-year-old kid had to go through any of that stuff. Absolutely. So he went to go live with a foster family in Leamington, leaving his hometown of Amherstburg behind. However, he found his way back to Amherstburg. They always find their way back. Always find your way back home. Yeah. Um, interesting note, Brett. He was banned from Shooters Bar and Grill. I used to work there. <laughs> so I thought I did, about I, you. <laughs> I, I did used to work there. But hey, yeah. who hasn't been banned from Shooters? Am I, I right? And- what did I, no, I started working there in 08. So, yeah, this was after everything oh. there. Yeah. So. And Brett was the one who threw him out. Just kidding. Just kidding. No. I wish. No, <laughs> just kidding. While Ronnie was uh, bouncing at the tab. <laughs> at the, Ron, back, <laughs> back when Ronnie was playing eight, playing some D-line for the AKO oh. Fratman back in 07. So, from here on out, when he becomes a teenager, Jesse Iverson is a regular at Windsor Jail for theft, fraud, possession of stolen goods, and he also had problems with drugs. Guess what he wanted to be when he grew up? A police officer, of that's right. And he actually got into police foundations at St. Clair. It's an actually graduated, Good. but apparently couldn't find a job. So I, they also call him like a high school dropout. So I don't know if there was some other program where he got in. Like 
Speaking of, you can get your GED. Like, yeah. you can get your GED through St. Clair. I know a lot apply. of great guys and girls who did police foundations. And I know, I know a lot of other people who are on the other side of the interrogation class. <laughs> Absolutely. After doing that. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, I, I thought, you know, I, I don't know, man. Like, after this upbringing and this terrible shit that happened to him, do you think he would have committed these murders if that stuff didn't happen to him? If he had a regular upbringing like you or I? Well, it, well yeah, like uh, retro. Uh, um, hindsight what is was that? hindsight Sweet. is twenty twenty when you're looking yeah. back at it. But obviously, if his father committed suicide when he was that young, he, maybe he was obviously dealing with some form of mental uh, illness, and obviously those mental illnesses are hereditary and they are passed down. So. Um, if he had had a normal upbringing, yeah, with some with with parents that were n- mentally stable, then yeah, of course, everyone has a has a good chance, man. Like you you put a kid in, in a good situation, and you're gonna give him a good chance. But so another interesting thing to note about this is that this entire murders and these this manhunt, it it was like the only first it was the first manhunt in the social media era, okay. which is pretty interesting, you know. So, like, um, people sharing Facebook like By the way, like... check out our Ma- MySpace page. No, this is MySpace back in the day. Oh, wow. Yeah. You'll be greeted with dollar bill emojis raining down the screen like the <laughs> Matrix. And Lil Wayne's Amelie plays at 20 times the normal volume in the background. Really? Just yes. on repeat. Remember, you go to someone's page and it would just be, like, yeah. mine was, something uh, on repeat. Mine was, mine was shoulder lean. <laughs> Let me see you right to step and let you shoulder lean. Shoulder lean. Shoulder lean. Get it right to oh. step and let you shoulder Who's on your top lean. friends list? I can't remember that. <laughs> yeah. Let's go look right now. How many different oh arguments and and, uh, and friendships were just destroyed because of MySpace's top friends page? Was Speaking of friendships, in 2013, Jesse Iverson posted that he was looking for love on prisonpenpals.com. Let's read his profile. Oh God. I would like to establish a romantic relationship constructed on the foundations of substance, honesty, and passion. Well, oh. don't we all? Yeah. <laughs> he also writes... At this point, it is integral that my thoughts, hopes, and conversations circumvent these walls of stone and fences of glinting wire. Wow, we got a real real Bill Shakespeare here. He says he's a published fiction writer, and he works as an English tutor in the prison school. The only fiction is that sentence right there, because he hasn't (laughs) written anything. (laughs) He hasn't written a goddamn thing. Fuck you. There's a couple online groups about this case. Uh, My absolute favorite one, my favorite one is a group called For The Who Liked Jesse Imason. So this is a girl who tried to write a group that said For Those Who Liked Jesse Imason, but she couldn't even write. (laughs) So here's a post from Amanda in 2009. You know what? Quote Mark <laughs> and all the others who want to sit here and diss someone on Facebook. Oh, hey, Mark. Jesse was a nice guy. And yes, he shot and killed innocent people. Innocent is I N I C E N T. This is just. And, oh, this is internet shorthand so back she writes, in the day? And yes, he shot and killed innocent people, but everyone fucks up always. Someone had to have pissed him off, and now he's paying for it in jail. Give the guy a break, would you? For people who didn't even know him, and know is just N-O, like who know him, yeah. you shouldn't even have one word to say unless you've met him. I'm sure everyone has thought about killing someone in their life, but sometimes you just have the nerves to do it. 
That's my input. And this page is useless, too. (laughs) (laughs) And fuck the horse you rode in on, too. (laughs) Oh, man. Oh, man. Just so... And and fuck carrots. Here's another one. Um, There's a girl that Sarah, on August 8th, wrote, Where is Millhaven? Is it a penitentiary or a jail? (laughs) Because that's where he was held. There's another post from the same Sarah on August 4th. And this is my favorite comment of the group. It says... I'm just saying, Francesco, that if Imason and Bernardo fought, I know Imason would win. Bernardo would probably try to rape him. They're talking about <laughs> Paul Bernardo. And then from oh here, the group just descends into people of spelling mistakes and death threats of people arguing over which serial killers Jesse Imason could beat up. So they're talking, they're basically setting up their own fucking bracket Please. as to who could beat Jesse Imason in a fight. Yeah, it's hilarious. Please go what look up, at this. What it's other so serial funny. killers could we set up in this bracket there's also a lot of posts about people who probably didn't know him and they talk about his terrible upbringing and how it definitely contributed to it and you know like it contributed to it i don't know if i do the same shit as him if i was in his boat but like it's uh you know something to think about it's terrible what happened though it's absolutely horrible and we're sorry that uh carlos and the reggae family right reggier Regier, R-E-G-E-I-E-R. So I think it's Regier. 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 Well, we're, we're so sorry that Regier. the Regiers and Carlos were murdered by this man. Obviously, this is a callous and uh, unforgivable act. Yeah, yeah right. it really so. is. People say that um, Bill and Helen, uh, Regier, that they, they would have been the first people who, you know, praise forgiveness Yeah. when this happened. Um, mm-hmm. It's a sad story for all involved, and it was a really scary time. You know, I'm sure... You remember parts of it, like you were around when it happened. Now that, like, when you bring it back up, yeah, I do remember. Like, I think I remember his mugshot being on the Windsor Star front page. Oh yeah, it was everywhere. Yeah. Anyway, but anyways, that's my story. That's a great job, and I'm sticking to it. You see, that's a great job, and that's a tough, uh, that's a tough, tough subject to come across. So thanks for doing that research, man. I wouldn't have been able to do that one. That's tough, man. It's good stuff. Time for a break. Brought to you by. PrisonPenPals.com. <laughs> Come on, S Club. Gonna show you how. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. S Club. Hey, yeah. Who's your favorite? I don't know. Joe? Was that the blonde one? I have no idea who any of them was. She was cute. Was she? You didn't watch the S Club 7 show? Hell no. There was like a rumor in school, like, do you watch S Club? Yeah. You know what the S stands for, right? What? It's it's the sex club. What? Oh my god. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> so, my story. Well, great job, by the way. I know it's a really in- in- intense story that you had to do there. Great job. Twas. I hadn't thought about that in a very long time. And that's what this show is all about. Oh, you said you didn't remember it. I, I, like, as you were uh, explaining it to me, I do remember the manhunt part, and I do remember, oh, okay. but, like, you telling us about, like, the conviction stuff, I didn't hear anything about that stuff, so that's really cool, so thank you. Um, obviously, there's some cool stuff that happens in our city and some really tragic stuff that happens in our city, and we got to tell both both of those, right? So, to learn both sides of history, it's not all sunshine and rainbows. And 
some place that doesn't really have a whole lot of sunshine is Alaska. Ooh. Have you ever been to Alaska? Uh, no, I've never been west of Detroit. Never <laughs> been be west honest. of Detroit. But you did go south. You've been to Cuba and stuff, though. Been a lot of other places, yeah. Yeah, just never been west of Detroit. Okay, yeah. that's cool. I haven't been west of... Well, west I've been to Calgary well. twice. Uh, three times to Calgary. Went to Chicago once. That was a good time. But Alaska itself is fucking huge, right? Like, okay. it's, it's it's massive. And it's very, very, very cold most Bears. of the year. Right and but it has very valuable resources and that's why is that's why we as humans are actually dumb enough to go live up there. So consequently, it is one of the most beautiful places on earth. And of course, if you see Alaska in the summer, it is an outdoorsman's paradise. So you've never been, but do you know anyone that has been there? Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. They yeah. enjoy themselves. I know people that have done those cruises. Yeah, and you just go by and there's like just like two thousand polar bears on an island. Yeah, and you're safe in your boat. Looks pretty cool, those Arctic cruises. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, hopefully, uh, those were still able to go on with uh, no global warming. Um, so Alaska is just where my story takes place right now, and obviously, it's it's hard to live there now. But like, can you imagine what it was like living there a hundred years ago? Pretty crazy. It pretty just crazy. Got there a hundred years ago. Yeah. Because <laughs> didn't Russia sell it to the states in like the eighties or something? Eighteen in the eighteen hundreds. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Because gotcha. uh, so. Everything so, I know about Alaska is from Balto and Insomnia with Robin Williams. Insom- I do like that movie, too. That was a good one. Balto's so, fucking awesome. But it's a good movie, too. Um, there's a lot of stuff that's not really true about Balto. But uh, Alaska's where my story takes place today. And, and we're going to have to go talk about a story, a town called Nome. N-O-M-E. Okay, I've why? I've seen about it. Well, I've seen about it in the news about, like, their coastline getting eroded because aren't they on the coast? Yes, like very much the so. Northern coast. Yes, they're way up there. Yes, so it's way up there. Yes, Nome is a small town on the west coast of Alaska on the shores Jeez. of the Bering Sea. Wow, that has fluctuated in size over the years based on how many people were working there at the time. So, like, for during, for example, during the gold rush of the late nineteenth and early twentieth century, this town had like twenty thousand people. So, like, probably like the size of like oh Amherstburg. Right, but like in a very small town. It's so north. It's yeah. So in 1925, 20,000 people. Right. So uh, no, sorry, that was the the boom. That was how big it was back then. But in 1925, there's about 1,500 people there, and like 10,000 people living in the surrounding communities of North Alaska. Yeah. So and there's a lot of uh, indigenous population there, and that's the Inupiat. Uh, Eskimos. So I don't just wanted to make sure I got that right. So Inupiat okay. Eskimos. So Nome is the largest Can town. You still call them Eskimos. <clears throat> That's it's not that, Inuits. The, these are just the people that were living there at the time. That's what they were called. Oh, I think Eskimos back. Eskimos back in now. Yeah, because it, it like I believe it describes like the, that person's tribe, like whatever okay. they they called themselves Eskimos. Gotcha. Apparently. Gotcha. So um, Nome is the largest town in in largest town in northern Alaska, but it has a small. It had Nome a small. It's not. No, it's not. I'm yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Uh, it had a small hospital at the time with a handful of nurses and 25 beds. It had a general store, a few taverns and hotels. Nome was basically the last town in North Alaska that you could live in. Okay. Like, yeah. So. Um, Before you go to Russia. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, during the winter from November to July, the port is closed. So like you can't get anything from November no- to July. Yeah. So wow. everything that you have to get, you have to get from dog sled or like from the railway and the railway doesn't go to Nome. It goes from Anchorage and Seward all the way up to Fairbanks. Just like all those big mining towns there. Yeah. Right. So, so the only way you can get anywhere out of Nome from November to June is by dog sled. Yeah. 
right? So they're on the I did like basically the Iditarod Trail. Basically, it's just uh, I know that trail. I've yeah. heard of it before. Yeah, because of the uh, I watch Discovery Channel. I'm cultured. Exactly, right? <laughs> and it, it's crazy. Like it's crazy the things that those people do just for sport. I don't right? need to read books. I watch Shark Week. <laughs> <laughs> I watch Shark Week. Yeah. So like, but uh, to get like the the trail itself is crazy. It's 1,500 kilometers. Right, so you go from Seward, which is in the far south, all the way to Nome in the north, which is fifteen hundred kilometers. How did oh, Balto do it? How did he do it? But you have to go through mountain ranges and across the Alaska interior. It's fucked. <laughs> <laughs> but you gotta get you gotta get done. And so I did rod means fucked in Inupiat. <laughs> Literally translate to oh, this God. is fucked. <laughs> exactly. We should have stayed home. We gotta get stuff done, right? Yeah. So we just find a way to do it. Okay. This part's serious. All right. <laughs> Back then, there was only one doctor in town. His name was Dr. Curtis Welch. And unfortunately for Dr. Curtis, he had misdiagnosed one of his patients. A young girl had come to him complaining of a sore throat and a fever, but Dr. Curtis had allegedly diagnosed her with tonsillitis. (laughs) COVID-1. And simply told her to rest, and she promptly, promptly passed away the next night. Oh, no. Allegedly, the mother would not allow the doctor to do an autopsy before the funeral, so the case was closed. So this was like just before, right after Christmas How did she of 1924. She she uh, she died. She had a sore throat. She had fever. She had pro- she had trouble breathing, and that's how she passed away. Like she oh, so they com- never found out. She never found out. She wasn't wow. the doctor wasn't allowed to do an autopsy because the mother wanted to have a funeral real quick. Um, shortly after Christmas and into the first weeks of January 1925, three more children from the town got sick. A three-year-old boy died within two weeks of about compl- a three-year-old boy died within two weeks of complaining about a sore throat and fever. A few days later, a seven-day-old, a seven-year-old girl died after the doctor had noticed a gray lesion on the back of her throat and on her tonsils. And this horrified Dr. Curtis for many reasons. Can you think of why? The gray plague. (laughs) Okay, so this gray leathery lesion on the back of this child's throat was the defining symptom of a very contagious and deadly disease called diphtheria. Do you know what? Do you know what diphtheria is? Is this Balto? It sounds like the screenplay for Balto. It's not the screenplay because Balto is not real. It was yellow fever. It was. Was it yellow fever? Okay, I didn't know that. I haven't. I don't think so. Um. So, diphtheria is really bad. It affect. It basically is what the croup started with. Like, so if you ever hear of croup, like people who oh, had diphtheria, yeah. their throats were so closed up oh, and they were so yeah. thick that they would like bark like seals, like, uh, 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 like that you, that's what the croup is, this is right? This is, du- this is diphtheria. So uh, the doctor knew that the hospital, so he's scared, right? Yeah. Because this is bad. And he was also scared because he knew that the hospital supply of antitoxin had, had expired. Well, he, like he wasn't an idiot. He knew it had expired. He had ordered more. Yeah. But the last ship that was leaving Seattle had not packed the medicine the, that he had ordered, and so his town was completely out of completely out of uh, medicine for these people. So he's like, "What the fuck am I gonna do?" That's crazy, man. right? And you can't get anything until spring, and it had just closed, right? So like, you can't get anything from a ship for six months. So on January twenty first, nineteen twenty five, this man in this town is screwed. He can't help. He can't help anyone that's coming to his house. Like he can't, to to get him help. This story is literally Balto. <laughs> I pulled out my phone, and Balto is a great animated movie. Yes, but it's actually based on. I just saw 1925, and I saw Gnome, and I said, "Holy shit, this is actually 
okay, now I'm interested. Okay. I was interested before, but now I'm, you're really interested. I'm now. That's yeah. right. Okay, good. I was I was thinking that this would reel you in. Okay. So so this doctor, Dr. Curtis Welch, he this town and this this man in this town is screwed. So what does he do? He calls his boss, the mayor of the town, right? He calls George Maynard, the the mayor, and he organizes a town meeting. At this meeting, he tells them that there are 20 people in town who are diagnosed with diphtheria and another 50 who are expected or suspected of having it. So you have 1,500 people in your town and almost 10% have diphtheria already, Damn. right? Allegedly. Um he knew that an epidemic was on the verge, and by the way, we don't have any oxytocin, uh, any antitoxin serum to treat anyone. So unless we take some drastic measures, everyone in this town and possibly this region, up to about ten thousand people, will die. Yeah, will get infected or will possibly die. Right? Unless they wear a mask. Unless they wear a mask. Dun dun dun. dun, dun, dun. So, so what do they do? What do they do, Willie? They impose a town-wide quarantine. Okay. That's right. They quarantined everybody. Uh, because the Spanish flu less than a decade earlier had killed nearly 50% of the known population in 1918-19, which was about 8% of the population of Alaska at the time. So like, there were so many people up in Nome at the time mm-hmm. that passed away that took out like 10% of Alaska's population, which is crazy. Damn. That's a lot. Um, so the four nurses... And the one doctor would had to go house to house and treat everyone. And so with a hope and a prayer, this doctor writes this desperate telegram to all the surrounding towns in the region. And about this public health risk, he sends it to the public health board in Washington, D.C., begging for help. Like He's begging for help. And this telegram is now very, very famous. And it says, and I quote, an epidemic of diphtheria is almost inevitable here. Stop. I am in urgent need of one million units of diphtheria antitoxin. Stop. Mail is only form of transportation. Stop. I have made application to Commissioner of Health of the Territories for antitoxin already. Stop. This is an interesting last line. There are about 3,000 white natives in the district. That's the last line of the telegram. (laughs) Right? And I know that you're confused. Like, I don't know. He's just probably just saying, like, how many people known people he has in the region. Yeah. Right? So, like, I don't think he was being overtly racist. He's just giving his... Is is a, a approximation of what the population is because yeah. the people who are native or indigenous to that population they don't register with the town files. Like I did some research about this, like why his language was like this. Yeah. And Brent ends every text he sends me with, "There are twenty white people in this notification <laughs> or white native people." I yeah, exactly. But so like this, this gets everyone's attention. This gets everyone's attention nationwide. And then so they have to wait around for the smart people in their area to come together and make a decision. Right. So a few days later, on January 24th, a meeting with the Board of Health, uh, a genius superintendent named Mark Summers proposes an idea. What is he? What do you think he proposes? Balto. A two-way dog sled <laughs> relay. <laughs> oh, Balto. A two-way dog sled relay. One team would travel from the town of Nanana, Alaska. Nanana, not Nanana. <clears throat> no, yeah, Nanana, N-E-N-A-N-A. And uh, another would travel from the other town. Ta- so, okay. So someone from Nanana. So the original plan was that someone from. Is it Nanaimo? Nay, no. It's Nanana. It's Nanana. So, it's, so someone from Nanana was going to meet the person going from Nome. Originally, it was going to be just two people meeting each other okay right a gnome nana 
I know Nina. And they were so these so Nome, a person from Nome was gonna meet someone from Nanena in the town of Nulatu. <laughs> so try saying that six times fast while you're doing this research. She sells she sells by the gnome. Exactly. So but you follow me, right? Yeah. So yeah, so there so Nulatu is the middle point. Okay. So normally a trip from Nulatu to Nome takes thirty days. The record at the time was nine. So who the hell is going to do this amazing, legendary, six hundred and thirty mile or one thousand fourteen kilometer round trip to save this town and possibly up to 10,000 people. Summers, the health board superintendent, had just the man for the job. He just happens to employ the greatest dog breeder and dog sled racer possibly ever. His name is Leonard Sapala from Norway and this dude is fucking badass. <laughs> Simply put, this guy had won the All Alaska Sweepstakes three times and his record for getting to Nulatu from Nome was four days. So they chose this guy. Okay. So they're, like, they're saying, okay, it usually takes 30 days. Like If you're really going hard, you can get there in 10. This guy can get there in four. Let's get him. Damn, right? that's crazy. So he gets the job. He has amazing ability with Siberian Huskies and his lead dog, Togo, is equally famous for being a great sled dog. Right? So there was a bunch of politics about whether or not to use a plane at that time, but they don't end up using... Uh, but they don't end up using a plane because they're not sophisticated enough, imagine? right? This is just after World War One, right? Rickety ass planes. So in the end, they so and they and they don't just use two teams at, at initially, right? They they that's the original plan. There's a couple, right? <clears throat> and in the end, they use twenty different teams, wow. and over 150 dogs contributed to what is now known as the Great Run of Mercy or the Great Serum Run of 1925. Wow. So you guessed it, but it's not quite what you think it is like they changed it for the movie okay. balto's real it is this is this that's is it. some of it togo is balto that's what his name no is. i think so okay no no wait for it right oh, wait, wait, yes, wait for it wait yes, for it yes. so the chief of surgery at the anchorage railroad hospital so anchorage is the capital of alaska right so the chief of surgery at that hospital found three hundred thousand units of the oxytoxin serum right Oxytocin so he or no 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 antitoxin okay. so I'm, I'm sorry that's why i'm getting it wrong so it's the serum so i'm gonna say serum right <laughs> or the vials or whatever the medicine fucking medicine whatever so he has three hundred thousand units of it right so that can that can help save the people but it's not gonna it's not gonna eradicate the, th- the virus they need a lot more so he he wants 1.1 million wow. but that's on its way from seattle and that's gonna take like two weeks okay right so so they put together a lot of focus on this run so they can help like quell the virus and then the second wave is going to help come like wipe it out. Okay. That's that's their plan, right? So in the town of – do you have any questions? You're, you, asked, you, <laughs> no. you, you, you were inhaling and I was thinking, is this guy – Nothing about Balto. It's, it's recording. It is recording? Okay. Don't worry. All right. So, so – knows we're talking about Balto. <laughs> exactly. So it's not going to fail us. So it began in the town of Nanana, Alaska on, Ju- on January 27th. 1925 at 9 p.m. The supply was wrapped in glass vials, then padded quilts, and finally in a metallic cylinder weighing a little bit more than like 20 pounds, so like nine kilos, right? Yeah. But like this town's hope is in these goddamn uh, is in these things, right? The challenge was immense. The temperatures were at 20-year lows, and there was an active storm system which resulted in 40 mile an hour winds and 10 foot snowdrifts oh, on the trails. God. And oh yes, there was very limited amounts of daylights due to it being polar night during the time. Yeah, you probably had like what two hours of two or three hours, four hours maybe of daylight a day. Wow. So you're driving snow through the snow in a blizzard in the night, hoping that you're going the right way. Wow. 
and what do you have to do? You have to trust your fucking dogs, dude. Yeah. At the end of the day. Anyway, in this trip, in total, this trip would be one six six hundred. Sorry, in total, this trip would be six hundred seventy-four miles or one thousand eighty-five kilometers to Nanana to Nome. The first member of the relay. What do you think his name was? Uh, Wild Bill Shannon. Oh, nice. Wild Bill. That's what I loved it. Nice. So I thought you'd like that. That was the musher. The yeah. Dog he, driver. So he he's like the when they when they first uh, started that he's the guy like holding it. And he's like. I'm going to take this across the way. Okay. He's he's a big-time racer. He has 11 Alaskan Malamutes. He left at 11. Yeah, sorry. So Bill has about 11 Alaskan Malamutes, and the temps when he left were negative 45. People, negative uh. 45 degrees Fahrenheit. And everyone was like, oh, aren't you going to wait for it to get lower? He's like, no, we have to go now. Like, because the serum. I remember this scene in Baltimore. It's only going to be six. It's It only has six days yeah. before it expi- before it, uh, it needs. It it can't be uh, exposed to the cold for that long, I guess. So that so that's what makes this a race against time. Yeah. So Wild Bill traveled fifty two miles in total, but unfortunately, three of his dogs passed away shortly after his uh, run, and uh, he suffered severe frostbite on his face. Yeah. So like pictures of this guy, he's got like black marks on his face just from not being able to protect himself. Yeah. Okay, I'm not going to talk about all twenty of the drivers. Don't worry. Day and night, 16 different drivers passed the serum between them without much drama until a guy named Henry Ivanov took it and left the town for the and left for the town of Shaktulik. Uh sorry. Yeah. Day and night, 16 different drivers passed the serum between them without much drama until a guy named Henry Ivanov took it and left the town of Shaktulik. He was a half mile out of the town when he ran into Leonard Sapala. So here's the thing. Sapala left Nome but he didn't know that he was supposed to meet anyone until he got to Nalatu, right? So this guy is already way past Nalatu yeah. on a trail, and he has to, like, wave him down, saying, hey, I've got the serum, I've got the serum. Like, you are the only one, basically, that knows how to get the way back. Yeah. And, and like, this whole trip is based on me flagging you down, bef- like, hundreds of, like, 100 miles before you're supposed to stop. Yeah. And, like, wave you down, pass it off, and then you get to go back. Okay. Isn't that nuts? Yeah, that's crazy. Like that's that's the limited amount of communication that they had at that time. Yeah. So that's I had to get that on the way. So this guy, he was a half mile of town. He runs into Sapala. He surprises him basically by saying like, "Oh shit!" Like, okay, now I have to turn around and go back, and now I now I have to go back home, right? So he had already traveled 160 miles to get to that point. Mm-hmm. So like you're thinking like okay he gets the serum he's gonna turn around like he's gonna he's gonna take a break and then go no he literally turns around right away and goes right back he's yeah. going he's on his way back and uh, yeah so Sapal and his dog had already traveled 160 miles from Nome to get to that point when he turned his team around into the wind into the wind with a temperature of negative 30 degrees Fahrenheit and he was it was pitch dark when they turned around to go back to Nome so that's the first part of my script. So one of the big things that he decided to do, he decided to risk going over a sea ice crossing at the time, like to save time instead of going around like a, a beach to be safe. He crossed, he crossed across the, he went across some ice that wasn't fully like frozen. So like he had to trust his dogs that they weren't going to fall into the water essentially yeah. and like find their way, get away from the water, like find their way, like smell a, a path that's like just full of ice so like his dog Togo is legendary because he was able to like pass them through this this twenty mile stretch, okay. right? So 
because of because they're across this ice part like it's a ice basically a, a blizzard and ice storm right so paula couldn't see so he's like he's burying his head like on these on uh on the sled and only togo's sense of smell got them from like point to point like he's like okay yeah we were here before i smelled this here like i'm smelling my own scent from before yeah. that's how they got back home so uh, eventually, after a hell of a day, in including traveling 85 miles in one day, Sapala got back to Dexter's Roadhouse and passed the serum off to a guy named Galavin, and he had traveled a hundred, uh, a total of 261 miles. That's crazy. Damn. So he's the Iron Man of this trip, but the serum was still 70, 78 miles away from home. So Galavin passed the serum on to a guy named Olson, who had a hell of a time on his trip. His uh, his uh, sled tipped over, and he lost the serum in the snow, and he couldn't feel with his glove, so he had to get his hand in the snow to find the cylinder. Yeah. Otherwise, it was gonna gonna be gone for history, and he badly got frostbite in his hand by doing that. So this guy named Olson, Charlie Olson, he was a big time hero too. So Olson passed the serum to someone who would become very famous soon, and he would become famous because of his lead dog. And what was his lead dog's name? Balto? Fucking Balto, nice. buddy. Nice. This is where Balto comes in. So 42-year-old Kaysen and his team of 13 of Sapala's backup dogs. So he just had a team of backup of Sapala's backup dogs. Sapala, okay. uh, Balto was Sapala's dog. So he takes Sapala's own dog and uh, goes from Gnome to Bluff to wait for the serum. A guy named Ed Roan was sent to Port Safety. And so uh, Kaysen with, with chest deep snow drifts and glare ice he was unable to see the trail and relied on balto to guide the sled so like the things that you see in the movie are probably true yeah like the things that the dog but that the dog did uh i would pretend to be balto exactly (laughs) so here's the thing about casein so there's here's the thing about casein he was supposed to go to a town called solomon and wait out wait out the storm there but because of uh, balto's direction and the storm Balto and him missed Solomon, so that was like their rest point, so they had to go to another town. Due to the severity of the storm, Kaysen missed the village, and Balto kept them on the main trail, passing to the south. I got the two guys mixed up. It wasn't Olsen that got his hand torn up, it was Kaysen. Kaysen's the one who got flipped off of his sled, got knocked off course, and then had to find the cylinder full of the serum in the snow and had his hand, hand frostbitten. So they got to safety, and they got some... Uh, shelter for a little bit to get his hand all warmed up and they had to warm the syrup up yeah. serum up at this little hut and then they went back on their way but he was ahead of schedule right so the last stop was he was supposed to head it, hand it off to another guy uh at this town called uh his guy's name was ed roan but it was 3 a.m and roan wasn't expecting him at that time so he was asleep so Kaysen saw that there was no lights on in the in the shed and he thought that, okay, we can make it to Nome in a couple of hours. So he just bypassed the shed and went to Nome himself. Wow. Right? And no one's expecting him to get there this early, right? So at 5.30, so at 5.30 in the morning, after doing another 21 miles that he wasn't supposed to, Balto and Kaysen come into Nome at 5.30 in the morning, and they are the heroes of the Great Mercy Run. And so they added another, so by doing, by uh, mixing by nixing the last stop, they d- added another like eight hours to their trip. Yeah. 
right? And some people were thinking that Kaysen was being like a glory hound. He's like, oh, I don't want like this guy to get the glory of coming to this town yeah. and stuff like that. So instantly, Gunner and Balto are heroes. Yeah. Right? So Gunner and his team become celebrities. They tour the West Coast from February 1925 to 1926. And even they start in their own movie called Balto's Race to, Ro- Race to Nome. All participants in the dog sled received letters of commendation from the president of the United States at the time, Calvin Coolidge. So, like, all twenty, the all dogs twenty, got all dogs, all the dogs got medals. All the mushers got like commendation and stuff. A statue of Balto by sculptor Frederick Roth was unveiled in New York's New York City Central Park during a visit on December fifteenth, nineteen twenty-five. Like the whole country was captivated by this story. It was a big time story because radio was pretty new then and everyone was like by the fire, like listening to see yeah. what the progress was, right? Yeah. So this 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 story is big because it ends it it not ends, like it's it's just about the technology at the time. Like they'd made the most of what they had, right? And they ended up saving all these people. So Balto becomes uh Using a technology hero. for letting people know how many white natives are <laughs> So Balto and the other dogs later became part of a sideshow. Here's a little sad part. And I guess like the person who owned the sideshow, like they lived in bad conditions until they uh, until they were rescued by a guy named George Kimball from Cleveland. On March 19th, 1927, the dogs received a hero's welcome as they arrived at their permanent home at the Cleveland Zoo. Uh, because of his age, Balto was euthanized on March 14th, 1933 at the age of 14. He was mounted and placed on display in the Cleveland Museum of Natural History. 14-year-old yep. husky, wow. That's a bit, yeah, he's old. Wow. But one person was pissed at all the praise that Gunner and Balto got. The guy that slept in? Leonard Sapala. Well, that guy was pissed too, okay, yes. Yeah. But uh, Leonard Sapala, he thought that he and Togo were not treated with the best press coverage, even though he had traveled over five times the distance that Gunner and Balto did, which is fair. Even though they were, they did their own tour and they did their own thing, and they were featured at Madison Square Garden in New York City for 10 days and went on a huge tour as well. Like like I said, Midwest, like they went all around yeah. the, the states. In the end, Sapelo became a famous Siberian husky breeder thanks to, thanks to Togo's fame. And after a long life, Sapelo visited Togo and was by his side when he was euthanized on December 5th, 1929 at the age of 16. After his death, Sapala. This is kind of weird. After his death, Sapala had Togo preserved and mounted, and today the dog is on display in a glass case at the Iditarod Museum in Wasilla, Alaska. They didn't do that to Balto, did they? He oh was on. God. He was on display at the Cleveland Museum after they euthanized him. Yes, yes. I think oh. that was kind of weird, but go see Balto this weekend. That's right. <laughs> How do you like that, buddy? Virtual tours of Balto's body. That's right. Oh, from almost 100 oh. years ago. I know, right? I love Balto. It's a sick movie. I, I like I I kind of knew it was loosely based on a true story like that, yeah. but knowing that is pretty fucking crazy. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. So, uh, uh officially the death toll from the uh diphtheria outbreak in Nome was like 5 5 or 6. Some people say it's seven, but because of those dogs and those people, it was only that many. So isn't that cool? The goodest boys. The goodest goodest of boys. The goodest of boys that ever did. So go and hug your dogs, folks. We hope you like that show. And uh, what did you think, buddy? You like that? I, I, I thought that that was yeah. a good one to end off with. When, when when I learned it was going to be murder, Much I was like, Let's... happier than mine. <laughs> Balto! So I thought that you were going to like that instead of the murder. But I really liked your story too, man. That's interesting. That was good, buddy. That was good. Uh-huh. All right. Well, that's a wrap. Yep. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and send us all your uh, comments and suggestions on Twitter. Yep. 
If you have any other ideas, send us an email, wildwakenandweird at gmail.com. That's right. And uh, Donate yeah. to Willie's OnlyFans channel. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, <clears throat> enjoy the show. Uh, rate us on Apple. Make sure you uh, give us a follow. Find us Five on... stars. Please leave a review on Apple. Yes, please. please. It makes a big difference. We've got a couple, and uh, we're starting to get some people to notice. So it makes a big difference. Thank you guys so much. Enjoy, and uh, let's keep it wild, wicked, and weird, folks. Enjoy your time. Yeah. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.